Good morning, brothers and sisters. Merry Christmas to you. What a privilege it is to get to worship with you. And uh, man, how good does this place look? It's gorgeous. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, would you please open to the book of Joshua? We're going to be in Joshua chapter 11 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one in a pew rack in front of you, one of the black ones there. And if you're using that pew Bible, you'll find our passage that we're going to study this morning on page 193. Uh, And just a quick preview of things to come. So today we're in Joshua. Next Sunday, we'll finish our time in the book of Joshua uh, with the conclusion of chapter 12. We'll have a couple of Sundays in Luke chapter 2. And then we're going to pick up a study in the Gospel of Matthew for a few months into the new year. And uh, so we're starting to land the plane on Joshua. And uh, this morning's passage is uh, going to be super helpful in this regard. So uh, in our study of Joshua, we have read about a lot of warfare, right? Just almost every passage we've been in. Uh, There's some battle, someone's dying, something grotesque is happening. And uh, one thing I've challenged you to do as a student of the Bible is to approach these passages in this way, to not merely look at them as accounts of war or battle, but rather to ask the question, how is God shaping his people in each of these scenes? That's what I've tried to highlight in our Sundays together is to show you how in the midst of all of these battles, the Lord is shaping a people for himself. He's turning them into promised land people. Today we're going to approach the end of chapter 11 from a bit of a different perspective. Rather than asking the question, what kind of people will we be in the promised land? The question we want to answer today is, what kind of God will we dwell with? in the promised land. What is our promised land God like? Uh, So end of chapter 11, uh, battles have all been fought. Everything is done. Now we get a glimpse of the very heart of God on display. The end of chapter 11 is a summary of Israel's conquest of the promised land. You'll remember that the passage before this that we studied last week, end of chapter 10, beginning of chapter 11, gave us a very detailed description of the southern campaign and the northern campaign. But today's passage is merely a summary. But in this summary, we're reminded of the good and trustworthy character of God. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you, you know something about God's character. You have an idea of what He is like. You know He's loving. You know He's gracious. You know He's holy and a, a number of other types of characteristics. But I wonder, when you think about heaven, what do you think about? Do you think about the character of God that will color that place? Or do you think about the wealth of the place? When you think about heaven, do you think about streets of gold and mansions, or do you think about the God who defines heaven itself? I mean, what is it that makes heaven heavenly? Is it the wealth of heaven, or is it the God of heaven? If it's the wealth, we'll just throw down some gold asphalt down Main Street, and we'll call Hingham good. But if it's the presence of God, and it is, 
then we would do right to think deeply about him. What is he like? What will it be like to dwell with him forever and ever? The passage we're studying this morning invites us to deepen our thoughts about God. This is the sort of passage that creates maturity in a believer because what we think about God will show itself in the way we live. The story of Joshua, if, if I could be so bold, it accuses us as the readers of thinking too small of God. I think that's a fair accusation. You see, over and over, God's greatness, His majesty, His might is put on display in the story of Joshua. He's the God who parts waters, who defeats armies, who stops the sun. He's a God worthy of worship and adoration. But what we do is we tend to have merely a transactional relationship with Him. So Joshua challenges us to see God as more than just a sky genie. He's your heavenly Father with whom you will spend all eternity And so what is he like? My goal in preaching this passage today is to help you think deeper about the God we'll spend all eternity with. And this passage spotlights four characteristics of our promised land God. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Joshua chapter 11 starting in verse 16. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. So Joshua took all this land, the hill country, all the Negev. All the land of Goshen, the foothills, the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel with its foothills, from Mount Halak, which ascends to Seir, as far as Bel Gad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war with all these kings for a long time. No city made peace with the Israelites except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon, all of them were taken in battle. For it was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated just as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Debir, Anab, all the hill country of Judah and of Israel. Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites except for some remaining in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So Joshua took the entire land in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses. Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. It's a beautiful summary of the conquest of the promised land. Now the passage begins and ends with Joshua. So Joshua took all the land, so Joshua gave an inheritance. But the highlight of this passage, the subject of this passage, is God himself. And so let me show you four characteristics of our promised land God. I want you to think deeper and bigger about him today. The first thing you got to know about our promised land, God, is he's the God who fulfills every promise to the fullest. If you want to think about God in his greatness, in his hugeness, we got to think about him in relation to his promises, and he fulfills every promise to the fullest. So this passage opens with some geographic markers. Verse 16, it mentions the hill country, the Negev. The land of Goshen, the foothills, the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel. 
What are those places? Well, what verse 16 has done is it has mentioned every major geographic region from northern Egypt all the way to north of the Sea of Galilee. This whole strip of uh, Israel uh, from Egypt to Sea of Galilee, every major geographical region mentioned there in verse 16. And verse 17 reiterates the scope of the promised land, but just with some different geographic markers. So Mount Halak is the southern tip of the promised land, and Mount Hermon is the northern tip. And so the area taken by Joshua and Israel from Mount Halak in the south to Mount Hermon in the north is about 170 miles in length, or it's roughly the distance from Hingham to Augusta, Maine. Just imagine a 50-mile-wide strip of land from Hingham all the way to Augusta, and you have, in general, the scope of the promised land taken by Israel. So there's a sense of totality in the description of the promised land. All these geographic markers are helping you see that every area code, every zip code, every parcel of land has been given by God to Israel. God has completely, totally, fully fulfilled His promise to give this land to Israel because that's what God is like. He fulfills His promises to the fullest. God doesn't give partial promises as if He were an unscrupulous used car salesman. And he doesn't make promises that he doesn't intend to fulfill as if he were some politicians. To the contrary, he always fulfills his promises out of his omnipotence. And that means the fulfillment of his promises is greater than we can imagine. I mean, to hold the promise is something incredible. But to see it fulfilled from God's infinite imagination and compassion and love and might and ability is something entirely different and beautiful. And don't we see this in the New Testament? This is true of God throughout the Bible. that He's the God who answers his promises to the fullest. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Titus chapter 3, verse 6, Paul praised God because he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus is able to save completely or to the uttermost those who come to God through him. So when a person is saved by God through faith in Christ, they're not saved in part, but in full. Every sin is forgiven, past, present, future. They are completely justified by God, having been declared innocent of sin and credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, He didn't make salvation possible. He didn't make it available. He didn't make it likely. He finished the work required for your salvation in full. All the work is His. The fulfillment of your salvation is His, and He gives salvation in the fullest. You're forgiven in the fullest. You're secured to the fullest. You're given the Spirit in the fullest. You have hope in the fullest. You have peace in the fullest. And one day, in the new heavens and the new earth, you will know glory in its fullest. That's the kind of God you belong to in the promised land, a God who fulfills every promise to the fullest. There's another description of God in this passage as well. He's the God who conquers every spiritual enemy. 
What kind of God are we going to dwell with in the promised land? The God who has conquered every spiritual enemy. Now there's an interesting detail about the kings that Joshua defeated. It's found in verse 20. I want you to look at it with me. Verse 20. It was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated just as the Lord had commanded Moses. It's that phrase, hardened their hearts. That's what's curious to me. Maybe that captured your attention as we were reading through the passage. What does it mean that God hardened their hearts? Let's talk about it for a moment. This type of language is found elsewhere in the Bible. Perhaps most notably, it's found in the book of Exodus, describing Pharaoh. And when you read through that uh, passage, there are places where Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then there are places where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. If you were to fast forward to the book of Romans, Romans chapters 1 and 9, God gave sinners over to their dishonorable passions and hardened them in their unbelief. So what is a hard heart? Spiritually speaking, a person with a hard heart is calloused towards God. They reject the gospel. They refuse to embrace God's grace. A hard heart is synonymous with a person who is spiritually ignorant and alienated from God. Why does God harden someone's heart? Well, every heart is hardened by God due to God's judgment on the whole human race in Adam. It's right to say that all people who are dead in sin, all of us dead in sin, have hard hearts towards God. There are not some who have a hard heart and some who do not. The basic starting point for all humanity is a heart of stone against God, against His grace, against His goodness. Well, then from biblical examples, there are some people who resist the grace of God with such intensity and longevity that God gives them over to their hardness. You see, these are not morally neutral people who would otherwise have a soft, fleshy heart, if you'll allow the metaphor to continue, uh, who then God forces a hard heart upon. That's not it at all. They are hard-hearted people whom God has been beckoning out of His grace But finally, God gives them what they want. He hands them over to the sin that they desire. So when we read here that God has hardened the hearts of these kings in Canaan, this wasn't just a momentary thing, a a flippant action by God. If you remember the history here, uh, God has been working with these people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And finally, He has handed them over, given them what they wanted, in giving them a heart of stone. Now, the most important thing you have to know about this subject is that there is no hardness in the human heart that is so hard that God Himself cannot overcome it and save even the hardest sinner. This is the very heartbeat of the new covenant promise from Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, where God said, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Listen, nothing is impossible for God. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. So you may be sitting there worried that someone you love is hardened in their sin. The answer to that is yes, they absolutely are. 
And can God rescue them in spite of their hardened hearts? The answer to that is absolutely, yes, he can. So what are we dealing with here in Joshua chapter 11? Well, these kings are hardened rebels against God. God has given them over to their sinful desires. And the army of Israel is God's chosen tool of judgment against these Canaanite kings and peoples. Since these kings are described as being hardened by God, listen, they're not merely political enemies or geographical enemies. They are spiritual enemies. They are motivated by a hatred of Israel's God. The scope of this evil is broad, geographically speaking. It encompasses the whole of the promised land. And the pressure of this spiritual evil is intense. They, uh, they form coalitions. They, they form alliances against Israel. And in fact, you remember that in chapter 11, earlier in chapter 11, these armies were described as being as numerous as the as sand on the seashore. This spiritual evil is widespread. It is intense. But God's judgment was carried out according to his perfect will. And Israel was given victory over their spiritual enemies. So our promised land, God gives victory to his people, over all their spiritual enemies. And make no mistake, you have a spiritual enemy. And you might think that such theology is not fit for modern people. Such thinking uh, isn't appropriate for civilized people. But I urge you to believe the Apostle Paul who said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These powers are real. They are personal. They are powerful. And God tells us about their reality for our protection. And how is it that we are protected? How are we delivered from our spiritual enemies? We are delivered by Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. In Christ, every spiritual enemy is defeated forever. You've got to hold on to that, brothers and sisters. You've got to know as you walk day by day in the midst of terrifying headlines and horrifying situations, things that are evil made manifest, you belong to the king who has conquered all of them forever. Pastor and author J.I. Packer talked of spiritual warfare this way. He said this. He said, Satan should be taken seriously, for malice and cunning make him fearsome. Yet not so seriously as to provoke abject terror of him, for he's a beaten enemy. Satan is stronger than we are, but Christ has triumphed over Satan. And Christians will triumph over him too if they resist him with the resources that Christ supplies. And the father of all lies is defeated by the one who is the truth. The prince of darkness is defeated by the light of the world. The accuser of the brethren is defeated by the word of God who took on flesh. Your promised land God has defeated every spiritual enemy. When we dwell with him, we're going to be with that God who's defeated all of our spiritual enemies. There's a third characteristic of God on display in this story. And it's this, he's the God who conquers everything fearful. What's our promised land God like? He's defeated every spiritual enemy, but then every terrifying, fearful situation, every single thing overcome by him. So real quick, let me give you a a trigger warning. Verse 21 talks about 
the Anakim. Maybe your Bible says the Anakites. A gasp, right? I mean, here they are. But it seems like you've forgotten who the Anakim are. I, forgive me, I thought we had some Bible readers in here. So let me remind you of who the Anakim are. The Anakim were dreaded early inhabitants of Canaan. They were monstrous warriors who terrified everyone who opposed them. They show up in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, at a really important point in Israel's history. There in Numbers 13, Israel has arrived at the southern border of the promised land. And you remember what Moses did there? He sent 12 spies, including Joshua, young Joshua, into the promised land to check it out. They came back with a report. Oh, it's great. Milk and honey, it's amazing, unbelievable. Gas prices, lowest we've ever seen, it's unbelievable. <laughs> but the Anakim are there. The descendants of Anak live in the land. The descendants of Anak, descended from the Nephilim, if you want to go back and read in Genesis. Terrifying warrior peoples. So terrifying that it fractures the faith of Israel. And they refused to enter the promised land because the descendants of Anak were there. These are terrifying peoples. And it was right for Israel to be terrified of them because of how bloodthirsty they were, of how horrifying they were in their war warfare. So once upon a time, these terrifying warriors kept Israel out of the promised land. But now, every fearful thing is overcome by God. How cool is it that the Anakim are bookends to Israel's entrance into the promised land? On the front end, they keep them out. On the back end, they are wiped out by Joshua. Joshua exterminates them, and they enter the promised land in full. And isn't this the very story of redemption? We have a fearful enemy who by his lies led us out of the Garden of Eden, out of paradise in Genesis chapter 3. But in Revelation chapter 20, Jesus exterminates him and eternal abundant life is ours. We regularly face terrifying situations that threaten to fracture our faith, but every fearful thing is overcome by God. And haven't we seen this over and over in the book of Joshua it's as if God knows that we're going to have trouble believing this and understanding it. And so in every major scene of this book, God acts on Israel's behalf in the face of terrifying situations. As if to remind them over and over again of what he is capable of, of what he will do. So in chapter 3, God parted the raging Jordan River to give them entry to the promised land. And in chapter 5, it's the angel of the Lord himself who appears as Israel's leader. In chapter 6, God destroys the walls of Jericho so they can take the city. In chapter 8, God gave Israel the strategy to take the city of Ai. In chapter 10, God destroyed the enemy armies with great hailstones and by stopping the sun in its tracks. And then earlier in chapter 11, God handed over a massive army equipped with horses and chariots, handed them over to Joshua and Israel. Brothers and sisters, what are you afraid of? 
Everything. <laughs> That's my testimony. Everything. I'm trying to learn this lesson. I'm learning it slowly, too slowly, I think. I, I want to see God in His might and power and ability in His compassion in His love. And I want to be the kind of man who is not afraid even though there are fearful things all around. I don't want to be glib. I don't want to be not serious about matters. I want to trust God so much as He should be trusted. The omnipotent God should be trusted so that I'm not afraid in these fearful things. I think that's what Joshua, the book of Joshua, wants for all of us. I, I want to believe that when God says, don't be afraid, it really means something. That's not a promise that just gets fulfilled in eternity. That's a promise here and now. Don't be afraid. Because our promised land God loves us more than the enemy hates us. He's our God who conquers every fearful thing. What's our promised land God like? He fulfills every promise. He conquers our spiritual enemies. He conquers our fearful enemies. And finally, he's the God who gives us rest. Verse 23 is the perfect end to this chapter, this, this whole section. Look at verse 23 with me. So Joshua took the entire land in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses. Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. Chapter, or excuse me, verse 23 is so fantastic. It's sweet that after all the time we've spent in warfare, here we have rest from war. Joshua took the land, he gave the land, the land had rest from war. The key word in verse 23 is the word inheritance. It's only the third time it's shown up in the book of Joshua so far. It makes quick appearances in chapter 1, and then we don't see the word inheritance again until this point of chapter 11. The word inheritance is the major theme of the remaining half of the book of Joshua. It's going to show up over 50 times in the rest of the book. Joshua took the land. He gave the land. The land had rest from war. Joshua and Israel enjoyed a rest that was incomplete. It's good, no mistake about it, but it's incomplete. It's insufficient. In fact, uh, Israel is going to have a great amount of trouble. Warfare doesn't stay gone for long. It's going to return. Israel is going to have problems from inside and outside. That doesn't mean this rest isn't important in, at the end of chapter 11. What it means is that Joshua and Israel enjoyed a rest that was a foretaste of the great rest that God held for his people. The writer of Hebrews described that rest in this way. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, if Joshua had given the people rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. Where does our Sabbath rest come from? Our Sabbath rest comes through Jesus, who at the cross finished all battles so that we could enter his rest. Now, the mistake we would make with this passage is to put ourselves in the place of Joshua and try to find a way to have the sort of success that Joshua had or to become the kinds of fighters that Joshua was. But I argue that's the wrong way to read this passage. 
We shouldn't read it as if we are Joshua, but as if we are Israel receiving the gift of an inheritance from God's servant. You see, this passage, it doesn't make us fighters. It makes us resters. Is that a word? It is now. It makes us people who rest. If you put down chapter 11 and you put up your dukes and go to fight the world, you've read it wrong. But if we sit in the rest that Christ has given, who fought our fight, who's won the victory for his church, then we've studied this right and we're thinking right about God. Jesus is the fighter and he's the giver of our eternal inheritance. So what is our promised land God like? Joshua 11 has put the spotlight on God and he tells us this, that he's the God who fulfills every promise in the fullest. He conquers every spiritual enemy. He overcomes every spiritual foe. And he's the God who gives us rest. What will you do with a God like that? You could harden your heart and push him away. I hope you won't. You're not meant to have a heart of stone. You're meant to have a heart of flesh. I hope you'll think deeper and bigger of God, so much so that you would begin your promised land living today. There's a common theme that I tried to point out at each of these four descriptions of God. Those themes, that common theme is that the blessings of the promised land all run through Jesus. In Jesus, every promise from God is answered yes. And at the cross, Jesus conquered our spiritual enemies in every fearful thing. And Jesus is the one who gives rest to all who come to him. So it begs the question, friends, have you come to Jesus? He died in your place for your sin. He rose from the dead three days later. He loves you. Sinner that you are, as hard as your heart is, he loves you. And if you will turn to him in faith, he will save you fully and forever. Are you ready to come to Jesus today? Why would you carry a heart of stone one more moment than you need to? If you'll hear his call and turn to him today, he will answer yes in the fullest to you. Now maybe you're not ready for that. But I want to challenge you to consider how the Bible's description of God compares with your understanding of God. So if the Bible is only one source you've consulted to craft a caricature of a God, then I promise you, your God is too small. You are meant for a greater love, and you will find that when you sit with Jesus. And church, let me ask you this. What does it say to the world when we live our lives doubting whether or not God will keep his promises? And what does it say to the world If we live as if our spiritual enemy has the upper hand, what does it say to the world when we live our lives in constant terror? What does it say to the world when we live with frantic souls void of rest? In all these negative scenarios, we are missing something about God. And as a result, the world misses the glorious truth about God. So friends, don't fill your home or your lives with warfare when Christ has given you rest. Don't give credit to a defeated enemy. Don't live in fear when Christ has conquered every fearful thing. 
Brothers and sisters, walk hand in hand with Christ, living in that promised land today. Not just waiting for some distant time and place, though that's what's on the horizon closer than we realize, but now is the day for promised land living. One day Jesus was standing in front of a crowd of people who were exhausted. In every way, people can be exhausted. And here's what he said to them in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So brothers and sisters, receive the rest of the risen Christ and live in the promised land today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage that helps us to see you clearly. We confess that our thoughts about you are too small, too infrequent, uh, too fractured by our own sin and limitations. Lift us this morning. Lift our eyes so that we would see you high and lifted up, great and mighty, compassionate, loving, the God of all creation, the God of salvation, the God of victory. You're the God who parts the waters, who brings down the walls, who conquers the enemy, who stops the sun. You're the God who has given victory to us through your son who died on the cross and rose from the dead. Father, help us to confront these faith-fracturing situations in our lives with the reality of you, mighty and compassionate. So, Father, lift my brothers and sisters, put strength in their legs today. Help us to think right about you, to think big about you, so that we would face our days as promised land people. God, I pray for friends in here that don't know Christ as their Savior, that this day they would have heard his call, that they would long for the rest that he gives, true rest, eternal rest. May they find it through faith in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.